Joshua 10, verses, verse 12. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord obeyed the voice of man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua, Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. So this morning, as you heard, we're continuing to wade our way through the book of Joshua. And this morning, we get to, I think it's safe to say, probably physically speaking, the biggest miracle in the whole Bible. Probably the most controversial, and in many cases, the most laughed at by people outside of the church, where the sun and the moon stood still. So if you're new, or uh, have taken a few weeks off, let me just set the context for a minute before we dive in. The Israelites have been moving into Canaan. They're taking the land of Canaan. And so they've they've taken Jericho, they've taken Ai, they have made peace with the Gibeonites. So what happens in the land of Canaan, they're basically cutting through like their version of the Mason-Dixon line, all right? It, It perfectly divides the north from the south. And then on top of that, this strip that they're cutting through is an elevated strip, which makes it incredibly strategic from a military point of view. So forgive me, this is how I imagine it. It's how I pictured it in my head this week. Imagine a putt-putt course, all right, where you've got, you're at the beginning and then there's the hole and there's one little thin path that goes to the hole and it, and it falls off two feet on either side, all right? You've got to stay on that plateau. That's kind of what I imagine this, this path looking like, except I'll also add, imagine the hole is five feet higher than you are. So you have this plateau that you rise up. It's steep to the north. It's a steep drop to the south. And Israel is taking this path. And so it's very important to the Canaanites that Israel not take this whole path because, because at that point, the possibility for a united, collaborative, north and south Canaanite front is almost impossible. So what happens is you have five kings to the south who decide we need to stop this. And they decide they're going to go after the Gibeonites first, which makes sense. The Gibeonites are a, they're a formidable army, but they're not Israel. And this would also test this, you know, this relationship, this new covenant of peace that we saw two weeks ago between the Israelites and the Gibeonites. And if they can take it, that would be a really military, militarily strategic place to be. So they attack. The Gibeonites send word to their new best friends, the Israelites, and say, remember the covenant that we made. We, 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 you need to come help us out. And at this point, I imagine a really strong collective eye roll in the camp towards Joshua. But Joshua is a man of his word. You think about it, this would have been a really easy opportunity to kind of wipe out that bad decision of chapter 9. But Joshua is a man of his word. The army marches all night, arrives at the city surprises the five kings and then 
we see the Lord really kick it in. The Lord causes confusion in the, in the camp. The Lord brings a hail storm as the five kings are retreating. And then Joshua, knowing the battle has been won, but seeing an opportunity to win the war, he calls for God to do something really extravagant with the sun and the moon. So that's where we are. And I want to be the first to admit that this is, a, this is a tall pill to swallow. I mean, we're, we're not talking about the Jordan drying up or the Nile turning red or Jesus turning water to wine. We're talking about something significant happening with the sun and the moon. So, I, I mean, we could potentially be talking about every law of physics being overturned here. I, was, I, was, I have a new friend um, that I've made since I've moved to Orlando, and he's not a Christian. And I was asking him a few weeks ago, what are your real, what are the real barriers between you and believing in Jesus Christ? And one of the main things that he cited were all these miracles that we see over the course of the Bible. And he named this one. So I mean, this, this is a, I want, I want to acknowledge the scope potentially at what we're looking at here. So I, I'm on a, um, I'm on a Facebook group the closed group that where Christians and atheists interact with each other, albeit not always that charitably. <laughs> but I, I posted and I said, this is what I'm teaching on Sunday, all atheists and skeptics. I would love to hear uh, what you would want me to address as we're teaching this passage. Are you ready for the response? <laughs> These are just the ones that I can repeat. Why, why didn't all cultures record this happening? Why don't you just call it what it is, a fairy tale? Who are you kidding? You're teaching magic. What about all those pesky laws of physics? Why doesn't the Bible even know that it wasn't the sun that would have stopped? It's the earth that would have stopped turning. Why don't you just teach it for what it is, fiction? And then my favorite, just be sure to begin your sermon with once upon a time. (laughs) I appreciate that one. So, I mean, really, these laws, these pesky laws of physics are something that are out there and we've got to deal with as Christians. And over the course of the 18th, 19th, and 20th century, you had whole churches and denominations who decided, now that we're beginning to understand science better, this could pose a threat to Christianity. So they began to explain away or even eliminate the miracles in Christianity. But the problem is that when you eliminate the miracles in our faith, we have no faith left. A Christianity with no miracles is no Christianity. It's basically, I don't know, a Masonic lodge or an elk lodge or a moose lodge. I don't know what happens in those lodges, but I can't imagine it would be all that different than a miracleless Christianity. And so as Christians, we need to be able to understand miracles like this in our faith. So what I want to do this morning in this passage, I want to look at this miracle. What is this thing that's happening? I want to look at what it teaches us. And then at the end, I want to kind of zoom out and look at the importance of miracles in the Christian faith. All right, so first, the miracles in our passage. I plural, I've added plural miracles. There are actually three. So first you have God throwing the five kings' armies into confusion. Secondly, you have this hailstorm that slows their retreat and maybe injures them as well. And then thirdly, we have the biggie, the moon and the sun. So the first two miracles, I don't, you know, it's not the hardest thing for skeptics to really, okay, yeah, I mean, 
God didn't really stir them into confusion. I mean, they, they showed up, they surprised them. It was early morning, that makes sense. Just, it's not activity of God. And then, you know, the hailstorm, they might call it a very timely hailstorm, just like the very timely earthquake that caused a very timely drying up of the Jordan River so they could cross at the moment their feet hit the river. But the sun and the moon, like, this is, come on, this is just a bridge too far. This is too much. So what is it that the Bible is actually saying here? And and this is really important, and I want to be clear. My goal up here is I'm trying to teach the text. It's not to say what God can and can't do or offer scientific ways that something could have happened to to make it easier to believe. My goal every Sunday is simply to figure out what is the text saying. So that's what we're trying to figure out. What is the text saying here? So there are actually a few options out there in the conservative Christian world. One, this wouldn't be as conservative, but one option is that it's poetic. You know, the author's just using poetic language to try and, and emphasize something that's happening here, but it's not really saying the sun and the moon stood, stood still. And proponents of this view would say, well, the book of Jashar that also um, chronicles this event, that's a poetic book, and it is. And they would point to places like Judges 5, where the Bible says, and the stars fought from heaven, and probably the stars weren't really fighting. It was emphasizing what's going on. But I don't think you can say that this is poetry or metaphor because the author's doubling down on the grandness of the event. So much so that whatever it is that happened, nothing had happened like it before or since. So poetry and metaphor, I don't know is, I don't think is a good option. Another option would be the straight face value of the English version. The sun and the moon stood still. That's certainly an option. Nothing's too big for God. Opponents of this view would want to know why we didn't all come crashing down, right? I mean, we're spinning and we come to a sudden stop. Why didn't we come crashing down? If you were going 220 miles an hour in a car and you came to an immediate stop, that would not go well. They want to know why did the oceans not overflow onto land? Why did the planets not just spin out of control? Uh, And these are logical questions, I think, coming from an unbelieving world. They're logical ramifications anyway. Now, to be fair, Christians who hold this view would just say, we believe in the God who created all of the universe by his word. He holds it together by his word. So to counteract those effects is not that big a deal. And that's a fine position to hold. You know, I guess breaking 10 laws of physics is not that much harder for God than breaking one law of physics. Uh, opponents of this view would also want to want to know why is there not more data out there supporting something this significant? Why is it not recorded all over the world in different cultures? That's a, a reasonable question. They would um, they would want to know why is there, why is there not astronomical data that apparently, if you know that world, could support a, a missing day? And I don't know if you're like me. I grew up hearing that uh, that NASA at some point had discovered. A missing day. So you can imagine this week, I'm looking all over the internet trying to support this missing day that I grew up hearing about. Well, I'm sad to report the best of my research shows that's probably an urban legend. I can find nothing to really support that. Um, but that's, that's kind of the, you know, that's a view. And that's what we have to wrestle with in that view. A third view is what's called the darkness theory. And this is an interesting one. Uh, it is held by some very conservative uh, 
professors and, and commentators. Dale Ralph Davis would be one of them if you know him. The question is uh, not that the sun and the moon ceased to do something, but what was it that they ceased to do? They would say, well, the sun and the moon didn't cease to move. They ceased to shine. And so darkness was what is being prolonged here. And somehow in this theory, darkness is what gave Joshua the advantage. I'm not a soldier. I've always heard that you know, if you're the winning army, light would work to your advantage more than darkness. But this is, this is a theory. So I started reading all these theories. And I'm like, oh my goodness. I, I, I don't know. My Hebrew is not as as um, up to date as maybe it should be. So I contacted my old RTS, Old Testament professors, Dr. Furtado and Richard Pratt. Some of you know them. And it made me feel better when I asked them, what do you think is going on here? They both said, I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) But what we do know is that the author is recording what's called a phenomenological account. It's recording a phenomenon. It's not giving us a scientific how-to of what's going on. And so we give, we have phenomenological phrases in our lexicon. We say the sun rises and sets, right? Well, we know it's not really rising and setting. We're spinning, yet we say it how we observe it. So what is being recorded and what we do have to hold to is his phenomenological account of what's going on. So Here's the best I can do with what this miracle is, that, that where I can support it significantly from the way the text is written. I think God did something to extend either the dark or the light. I lean towards light, and he extended that light in some way. It could be as little as refraction in the sky that made it seem like the sun and the moon stopped. It could be that the sun and the moon stopped. That's, that's the range we have in all our good positions because God can do whatever God wants to do. But I do have to say the text doesn't demand that we say the sun and the moon stopped. But the text does demand this. The text demands that we believe that God intervened somehow in our world changing things, even the very laws of physics, to accomplish some things. That is is the miracle, the big miracle in our text. So what is it that God was wanting to accomplish? That's the second point. What the miracle in this passage teaches us. So I think the miracles teach us three things largely. First, the miracles teach us that God fights for his people. God fights for his people. Whatever it is that God is doing, he is in no uncertain terms fighting for his people. Our God is not a meek passive God. You know, we can have all these, these images in our mind of a, of a meek and passive God that is anything but the God of the Bible. Too often, I think we can picture a God who's a, a good force, you know, and kind of sets things up and then lets them go and hopes for the best. You know, or we can think of God as merely a baby in a manger, or a very kind and tender Jesus with, you know, pale skin and long hair that somehow seems to fit a little bit better in a skin or hair product commercial than in the Bible. Too often, our God looks more like Glinda, the good, each, the good witch from the East, and not the God of the Bible. Our God in the Bible is a God who fights. He's fighting in this text He is a God of justice and he will fight for that justice. He will fight for his glory. He will fight for his people until all of justice is served in every corner of this galaxy. 
That's the God that we see in this text. And we see this God fighting, not just in this text, but in Revelation, Genesis to Revelation. We have a God who fights for Joseph when Joseph is sold into slavery. We have a God who fights for David many times over. We have a God who fights for Israel. We have a God who fights for Paul when he's trying to preach the gospel and entire cities and entire religions are opposing him. And we have a God who fights for us every day that we breathe on this earth. So how is it that God fights for us? He fights for us on three fronts. First, he fights our enemy. We have a real enemy, a real spiritual enemy who really lurks, who really wants to deceive us, who really wants us to abandon this God. And this enemy is invisible to us. He is more powerful than us, but we don't have to fear him because our God is fighting for us. Our God also fights for us in this world. Our God is a God who sees and rules a kingdom of light. And his goal in the biblical narrative is that the kingdom of light would cast out the kingdom of dark. That there will be a day where all there is in every corner of the universe is the kingdom of light. And incidentally, that's why we're here. The church is a missions outpost. We live to be a part of that kingdom of light expanding until the day that Jesus comes back and makes everything permanent. So he fights our enemy. He fights for us in this world. And then third, he fights for us against our own sin, against our flesh. Our sin causes us to actively fight against God. I mean, you think about it. This is insanity. We naturally want to fight the God who wants to fight for us. I mean, if that isn't a losing proposition, I don't know what is. It's the ultimate shooting yourself in the foot. And this is why we need Jesus. This is why God sends Jesus to pay the penalty of our sin, to bring us the Holy Spirit, to change us from the inside and to get us to a point where we, we long to be under the authority of God. Not under his judgment, but under his grace. And he begins to fight for us. Until our victory is won. He fights for us in our doubts, in our unbelief, in our addictions, in our ailments, in our loss and in our pain. He fights for us. This is why Paul says, he who began a good work in you is faithful to bring it to completion in Christ Jesus. And it's interesting to me that the author doesn't look at the sun and the moon as the main miracle in this text. Did you notice this? Look at verse 14. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. It's been the most amazing day ever. Not, it didn't even mention the sun and the moon. He says the Lord fought for Israel. And every time you see in scripture somebody realizing or a people realizing that God is fighting for them, it only serves to increase their effort, to increase their action. Understanding that God is fighting for us, it doesn't squelch our action, it encourages it. All right, here's the picture I have of this that God has given me. About three weeks ago, my in-laws upgraded their couches, which means we inherited their old couches. And we were very happy to inherit these couches. And so they were heavy couches. And, and so we brought them down and we're moving these couches from point A to point B all over our house. And uh, on one side of the couch is me. On the other side of the couch is Robert Jackson. Very, very thankful for your help. 
And so we're moving this couch and my four-year-old James comes up and says, can I help daddy? And I say, sure. And so his version of helping was jumping up on the couch and riding it to its destination. (laughs) But I started to think about what happened. He knew that we had it under control. He knew that we were going to accomplish the task. So what did that cause him to do? He was motivated to get on board. He wasn't scared that it was going to fall on him. He didn't think that it was all up to him. It made him want to jump on and ride because it was going a good direction and it looked fun. (laughs) And I think you could say the same thing about God's plan for us in this world. The more we understand that he's got it, that he's fighting for us, I think the more encouraged we're going to be to fight our sin, to turn to him and tell other people about him. So God has this, he fights us. But in that verse in 14, there's a second thing. Not just that the Lord fights, but that he heeded the voice of a man. So not only is God fighting for us, we can go to God and ask him for some things. This is another thing the miracles teach us. We can go to God and we can ask. Joshua asks a very specific, a very bold, and a very public, if you notice, he said this in front of all of Israel. He made this request because he knew that it would be in line with what God wanted to do with Israel. So he makes the request and God does it. My second sermon I ever gave in a church was on this passage. And I went back this week and I looked at it and it was truly horrible. (laughs) It was really bad. Um, But I remembered as I was reading it, going back however many years, and I remember being really awed that Joshua could talk to God like this. And then I remember it hitting me. I can too. You know, but what, there's so many, there's so many reasons that I'm not asking for requests this bold, this specific, and this public. Why is it? And I began to think about the things that hold me back. And I think one of the biggest things that holds us back in asking God for things just as miraculous in our lives, just as bold and specific and public, is that we don't want to deal with the potential that it might not happen. What does it do to our faith if we ask for something and it doesn't happen? In his book, The Praying Life, Paul Miller uh, was telling a story about, he was going camping with his children. And they, they got out of the car and they were unloading and one of his daughters, who does not see very well at all, her contact lens falls onto the ground in the dirt and she can't find it and she's flipping out and he says hold on hold on we need to find this I mean if we don't find this we're all packing it up and going home and he said before we do anything let's just pray let's pray that God would reveal where this contact lens is and his daughter immediately burst into tears and said dad I've been praying for six years that Katie would talk and he has never answered that prayer Katie was her sister who is highly on the autism spectrum. She had never been able to speak. And at this moment, the faith of the daughter and to some degree, the faith of Paul Miller himself is on the line because they're about to ask God for something very specific. And we could be fooled into thinking it's better just to not ask than to let our faith or our children's faith let down What is it that you're afraid to ask God for? 
Are you afraid to ask God that your boss would be nicer? Are you afraid to ask God that your children's hearts would change? Are you afraid to ask God for a better marriage, a healthy marriage? Are you afraid to ask God to get out of debt? What is it that maybe God wants you to bring to him? But if we're honest, we're too scared to even ask because we have to answer the potential of what if it doesn't happen? If you were with us in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, you remember Jesus saying this, for everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? We ask because we know who it is that we're asking. And many of you have children and you remember, especially when they're little, they'll ask you for anything. It doesn't mean the answer is always going to be yes, but they come to you and ask for anything because they know you love them. My four-year-old has been asking me for a year for a baby lamb. <laughs> and I, nobody better show up with a baby lamb at my house. He's not going to get a baby lamb. But he comes to me and he keeps asking me for a baby lamb because he knows that I love him. Paul Miller and his daughter prayed and they immediately found the contact lens. Immediately. It was a really, really significant moment for his daughter and her faith. But sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is not yet. But we can never be fooled into thinking that our main problem is that we don't have access to the Father because we do. That was secured by Jesus Christ on the cross. He is our go-between between us and the Father. And there's this misconception out there that Jesus is cool with us, but God the Father, he's always angry. (laughs) And that's why we need Jesus to go talk to him for us, because our Father likes Jesus, but not us. And that's not at all what's going on in Jesus being the go-between. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. And in that moment, for all of us who believe, the throne of judgment became a throne of grace and acceptance. And this is why the author of Hebrews writes, let us then draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need so God fights for us we have access to him he hears our prayers we can make requests and then thirdly we see from the miracles in this text that he will give us victory victory was given to Israel and after they During the battle, they found out that the five kings were in a cave and they sealed off that cave. They finished the battle. Then they brought the five kings out. They put their heads on the ground and they put the men of war, put their foot on the necks of the kings, which can sound kind of harsh, I guess, or cruel to us. But this was a really common way of ending a battle, of securing victory and showing everybody who won this battle. Incidentally, there's a good chance that Israel had heard about this, this process for hundreds of years, but this could be the first time that Israel's actually engaged in it, certainly the first time that Israel's on the winning side of this. So they have their feet on the necks of the kings, and Joshua, as they were doing this, comes and he says, be strong and courageous. So this is a recurring thing, a recurring theme in this book. And what we see happening here is a type of sacrament. 
and I use this word loosely, but if you think about what's going on, you have a reminder of the victory that has been secured, words of encouragement based on that victory to help you see the victory that is assured. Is that not what we do every time we celebrate communion? We'll celebrate communion next week. We take the bread and the cup and we're reminded of the victory secured for us by Jesus Christ on the cross and the victory that is assured to us when he comes back. This is a type of sacrament that is meant to encourage God's people to continue to follow him, that he will be faithful to accomplish everything he has promised to do. And I can't look at this story and not think back to Genesis 3. After mankind fell, curses were coming on us and the serpent. And what curse went to the serpent? One day there will come a man from the line of Eve and his heel shall crush your head. If the feet of the Israelites on the necks of the kings isn't a picture of the victory that we will have from Jesus Christ on our enemy, on our world, and on our flesh. I don't know what is. And it is a neat time to be a Christian right now. Because it's easy in the pain and the sorrow and the loss and the weariness of our life... You know, and the, the so-called decline of the church in the western part of the world to think, is this victory really going to happen? Well, I can tell you, we have a better vantage point of this victory, probably than anybody over the whole course of human history. As many of you know, the elders of this church last week went to the Acts 29 Global Gathering, where we got to see pastors, over 1,300 pastors from 45 different countries, different cultures and languages, praying and teaching and singing And I know I've said this before, but we're reminded of the fact that over half of the Christians who have ever lived are alive today. The gospel is exploding worldwide. And it is a neat time to be a Christian to be able to see this gospel go around the entire earth. Our victory is secured. And we can see that by these miracles in this passage. But... And this is very important. That victory is only for those who believe in miracles. And so this is where I very briefly, I want to step back and I want to look at the importance of miracles in the Christian faith. In the beginning of this message, I talked about those churches as as science, modern science was developing those churches in the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries that, that wanted to adapt their Bibles to account for these miracles. They wanted to explain away these miracles. They wanted to take out these miracles. Do you know where these churches are today? They've either disappeared or they're dying a very slow death as decades-old endowments keep the lights on and support their gospelist ministries. And people study, they put these studies out and they say things like the church is being is declining in the West. The church is dying in the West. Well, it's not our kind of church that's dying. Our kind of church is doing quite well. It's these types of churches that are dying because a Christianity without miracles has no power. And a God who can't work any miracles in the physical realm is never going to work a miracle in our heart 
So it makes sense that this part of the church is dying and our part of the church is flourishing. Miracles are absolutely essential to what we believe. We can't be ashamed about it. We, can't, we should never apologize for it. But when we look at all the miracles in our Bible, we need to all agree. Whether we, we can disagree on what exactly the big miracle is here, but the most important miracle to agree on is the incarnation and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if you're here today and you really struggle with the moon and the sun stopping, I would say that's okay. Go to the miracle of the resurrection. The miracle of the resurrection is the most important miracle that we have. It's actually the clearest miracle that we have. And it's the most well-documented miracle that we have. And I trust that as that miracle becomes more clear, so will the others. That is the miracle upon which our faith rises and falls. And it's why the Apostle Paul says, if that didn't happen, we are to be pitied above all men. We serve a God of miracles. He does miracles in the physical realm. He does miracles in our hearts. And so I want to finish by asking us, are we trusting God for these types of miracles today? Are we trusting God that he can really do miracles in, in pulling us out of our sin? That he can really do miracles in using us to expand his kingdom of light here? Are we asking him for real opportunities to be able to communicate his gospel to other people? Are we Are we asking for the wisdom of how to step into those opportunities? Because my hope is that we would be asking God for these kinds of things and that we would see things happen on such a scale here that no one who walks in here is ever going to be tempted to give credit to you or me or anything else that we're doing in here. But that it will be abundantly clear that the person who is working the miraculous work is our miraculous God. Let's pray. God, we do come to you and thank you that you are a real God who does real miracles in every realm, physical, spiritual, emotional, psychological. You are about miracles. And wherever it is that we are today, we know that some miracles are done in this life and some are done in the next. But we pray that you would give us the wisdom to trust you for the miracles that you have for us in this life and the wisdom to trust you in the miracles that await Jesus's return and that that would draw us to you, that it would draw hearts to you, that it would encourage our hearts and that it would call us to action. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.